Hello and welcome back. In this episode, we're going to do the Persian Army. I am Professor Christopher Gennari, your host, and we are in our second episode of the Persians, and we are going to do the Persian Army. Now, the Persian Army is an imperial army. Anyone can join it. It is going to suck up people from all over the place. It's imperial. That's what we mean by imperial army. So, lots of people are going to join, and they're all going to be different peoples. Anyone can join, which means it's huge. An imperial army is by definition huge, and it's going to be 250,000 people or so. So, it's always been huge. Like, that 250,000 is, is a modern guesstimate. <clears throat> Herodotus po puts it at about 4 million uh, people invaded Greece. Now, the reason why it's 4 million is that's the equivalent of like a gazillion for us. It's a number that is so huge, it doesn't really exist in Greek. It's so enormous. It's basically all of Asia came to invade Greece. Well, that's given the logistics of the time, given the food supplies of the time. Modern historians who analyze this come up at about 250,000 people. Now, that's enormous. A typical army is 30,000. Ramses' army is 30,000. A Assyrian detachment. Now, the Assyrian army is, is larger, but it never very rarely fought as one united super army of 100,000 or so people. It fought in detachments of twenty or 30,000. And the reason why is water and food. It's hard to get all of that stuff in the same place for that many people. So, so to be able to supply, feed, give water to 250,000 people is a huge accomplishment that's not matched again to 1800 and the armies of the French Revolution, the armies of Napoleon. So we have a huge army. Two, the Persians are the best part of that army. Obviously, they're the cavalry. This is what they do. They are nomadic horse peoples. So they're fighting in their home style. The Persians fight on horseback, shooting bows, stabbing people with spears. They're good at it. They're excellent at it. So they're nomadic people. They're fighting in their home style. Great. Now, if they fight in their home style, everybody else fights in their home style. They fight in their traditional style. So if you are a archer people, you don't suddenly get a horse and try to be cavalry. You don't know what you're doing. You're going to be terrible at that. So the Persians say, no, 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 no. Bring your archers. You're good at that. Oh, your spear people? Bring your spears. You're good at that. People fought in their traditional style. So the advantage of this is very clear. Everybody's good at what they do. The spear people are good at fighting with spears. The axemen are fighting with axes. They're great at that. The archers, great at archery. Everybody is good at what they do. 
What is the disadvantage of this? The disadvantage is also fairly clear. This is not one army. This is not one united 250,000 person crew working together like the Assyrians. They're not the Assyrians. Remember, the Assyrians are a national army. Only Assyrians who speak Assyrian, act Assyrian, think Assyrian, can be in the Assyrian army. The Persian army sucks in everybody, so it's way bigger. It's way more diverse. It's got way more ways of fighting. But those parts don't necessarily work well together. A Persian king can't really say, um, chariots, attack, then wait for the archers. The archers will, will work with the infantry. That's what an Assyrian king could do. His army could do that. A Persian king can't do that. His units, basically, he walks up, he's got this massive army and says, charge! And everybody does what they do. So the advantage is, it's diverse, and everyone's good at what they're doing. The disadvantage is, they're not united. They don't work together. They are 15 little armies instead of one giant army. If it was one giant army, they would have crushed everybody. Now, they beat most people anyway. But a one army of 250,000 people in the ancient world would have conquered the world, would have rolled over Europe, would have conquered Greece and Rome and everybody else and just rolled over everybody because you, you couldn't fight that with your 20,000 10,000 Athenians. That's that's not going to happen. So it worked out that the different groups fought differently in their different ways. So this brings us to how it behaves. How does it act? Well, what are its tactics and what are the advantages and disadvantages of those tactics? Well, the first is it's huge. The size is huge. 250,000 people is Babylon on the move. Now, that's a city on the move. It's the greatest, biggest city. 20 times the size of a typical city. On the move. So when they show up and Cyrus knocks on your front door and says, Hey, I have an army of 250,000 people. Want to fight? Most people say, No, I surrender. What are my choices? Fight and die or surrender and be king? Well, uh, uh, I'm going to pick being king. This is cake or death. Cake or death? Would you like to have some cake or would you like to die? Well, uh, most people go, uh, cake, please. Yeah, cake. It's only the crazy ass Greeks who are like, no, let's die. The, whether it's the Athenians at Marathon or the Spartans who want to who find a Thermopylae and then want to build a wall at, in the Peloponnese and fight some kind of Gadadamarong, Valhalla-style battle. It's only the Greeks that are crazy enough to want to do that. Everybody else says, whoa, we cool. We cool, Holmes. We cool. So the size overwhelms everybody else. Most cities are five to 10,000 people. Most armies top out 
at 20,000 people. So what happens is, when you, if you do fight, they're just going to surround you with their bigger numbers, like at the Battle of Thermopylae, and smash you. And kill you. The second thing is diversity. All these little groups do their own thing. So great, I'm going to get a big-ass shield with a big old spear, and that's going to protect me from horses, from cavalry. You can't charge on me. Yeah? Well, now you're a big-ass target for archers. All right, so we'll spread out. Well, we spread out. Now swordsmen can come in. Because I, with the spear, once I get within that 10 feet, I can't kill them anymore. And now there's no one to protect me. That's because we had to spread out. Because the guy on my left and my right had to spread out. And the guy behind me is now farther away to protect us from archers. Well, now the swordsmen come in. Oh, what about horse archers? What about elephants with bazookas? If you ever watched a movie, The 300, there's a montage scene. It starts with infantry, then goes to cavalry, and then it's like, oh, well, then we got dudes with giant dudes with chains. We've got rhinoceri with bazookas. We've got elephants with uh, lawnmower blades. Uh, that's the diversity. Now, some of those are made up and fictional, like elephants with lawnmower blades. But the Persian army had elephants. From India. It conquered India. So it had elephants. And if you lived in Western, the Western part of the empire, Asia Minor, Greece, uh, Lebanon, Israel, you've never seen an elephant before. You've never seen a 15, 20 foot tall elephant. The hell is that? And then comes charging at you, yelling. You run, man. So, the first advantage it has, the first advantage in tactics it has is size. It overwhelms people by its sheer size. And most people surrender because they look at it and they go, I don't want to fight that. The second thing is, if you do fight it, it's incredibly hard to defeat because it fights in so many different styles. You can't defend against them all. It's impossible. The third is geography. Because it's so diverse, because there's so many different people in it, it can fight everywhere. And it does. It fights in the, mar- in, the, in, the, in the mountains of Greece against Spartans at Thermopylae and wins. Thermopylae is T-H-E-R-M-O-P-Y-L-A-E. That's again, T-H-E-R-M-O-P-Y-L-A-E. Against the Spartans. They could do urban warfare where they fought at Babylon. They could cross a desert and invade Egypt. They could defeat Lydian horsemen with camels and Indian uh, elephants in India. They are able to fight everywhere in every different terrain. Because there's somebody in this army that can do that. And so, its size, its diversity, it's, it gives it a huge advantage in geography. It can fight everybody anywhere. There's no place where it wasn't totally successful. The one place was the flat steppe of Russia, where the, the horse guys just ran away. 
where they 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 didn't own land. They were nomadic, so they just they just rode up, shot you with an arrow, and rode away. And you kept following them, and they kept riding farther away. They didn't have cities. They didn't have anything to take. They didn't have anything to own. And so that's the one thing. But it, that's like punching jello. It's, it's not that they didn't win. They technically did win. There's just nothing to win, nothing to hold, nothing to take. It's it's punching jello. And so what Darius will do is leave those parts. He'll keep Greek cities on the coast and hold on to those. But for the most part, the, the step, the, the conquering of the flat parts of the Ukraine up to where the forest of Russia begin. Let the horse people have that. And in fact, what happens is they hire those horse people to join their army. So in the end, why conquer them when you can just hire them and bring them in? It's, you know, nomadic horse people are fairly cheap to hire. So then what happens to, so that's, so that's the Persian army. So what happens to Persians? What happens to the Persian army? Well, they get defeated by the Greeks. Uh, Darius will attack Athens for reasons that we'll get into in the Greek section. And he'll lose at the Battle of Marathon, where we get two things. We get the Marathon, and we get Nike, Nike, N-I-K-E, meaning victory. In fact, the two are related. Um, and the reason they lost is be mostly because they're in the mountains of Greece. They couldn't use that huge size of the army. They got stuck. They fought the Athenians where the Athenians wanted to fight, which was a beach between two mountains. Now, the problem with this, and then they lose again to the Greeks. Then, then, then Xerxes says, all right, all right, all right. My father just messed up. I'm going to really, he just wanted to beat Athens. I'm going to conquer all of Greece. And he invades Greece and he loses. Again, mostly to the Athenians. And he loses. So this brings up a problem of legitimacy because the Greeks are nobodies. The Greeks are a bunch of, of people at the end of the hillbillies at the end of the world who aren't sophisticated. They're nobodies. They're not yet our Greeks. Compared to Babylon, compared to Egypt, compared to Persia, they're losers. So if losers can beat the greatest king and greatest army in the whole wide world, well, I'm a prince in Asia Minor with an army. Maybe I carve myself out a little territory. Maybe I become like a mafioso lord in the mountains. Maybe. And you have this problem of legitimacy. If the greatest king in the whole wide world can lose to these losers, maybe he's not so great. And remember, number two, this was never a unified empire. Cyrus beat people up, yes, but he let people stay the way they were. The Persians and the Medians kind of unite, but they were cousins already. They were already united. But the Lydians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, the Jews, the, uh, the Phoenicians, the Egypt, none of them become Persian. You couldn't become Persian. You couldn't get Persian citizenship. You couldn't become a Persian uh, lord. So what we have is one Persian empire on top of a hodgepodge of lots of separate things. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a 
pot pie. It's a turkey pot pie. It's a chicken pot pie. Where you look at the pot pie and you, when you get it, you go, ooh, that's a pie. It's got crust. It looks like one giant thing. You're charged only for the pie. Great. And then you carve into it. You take your fork and you push in and, the, and you get some, some goo and it's great. And then you take off the crust and boom. It's got chicken, it's got peas, it's got carrots, it's got onions, it's got, it's got all of these parts that aren't united. It's not one pie. It's not an apple pie. But you carve up an apple pie and it's all apple. And everything, even the cinnamon, and this is, it's become a one thing. Turkey pot pie, chicken pot pie, is lots of separate things held together by this outer crust. That's the Persian Empire. It had fractures and its divisions. And when you have a problem with legitimacy, those parts start to break away. Because people go, why would I listen to you? So separate people stayed separate, which leads to fractions and divisions within the empire. Nothing too bad. Nothing terrible. Nothing a new Cyrus couldn't fix. All you need is a is a, a great king to come along, whip everybody back into shape. Unfortunately, they didn't get that. They got Alexander. In the 320s, Alexander, not yet the great, but on his way, takes a his Macedonian army, takes a Greek army, hooks them up together, and invades the Persian Empire. And completely smashes the Persian army. He smashes the Lydian, not Lydian army, but uh, the the army of the princes in Lydia, what had been Lydia. He smashes them. Then he smashes the royal army, the imperial army at Isis, I-S-S-U-S. And then he does it again at Arbella or Gorgamela. Um, if you want a nice little eight minute version of this, Listen to Iron Maiden's Alexander the Great off the Somewhere in Time album. So they, they basically give you the Plutarch version of Alexander in one kind of eight-minute long song. And by defeating the army, Alec, the, the Persian Empire broke apart. There wasn't anything holding the Persian Empire back together again because it had been created by this Persian army and held together by the Persian army, which was an imperial army. With the destruction of that army, especially at Gorgamela, at Arbella, um, A-R-B-E-L-A, the empire broke apart. And what eventually happened is Alexander picked up the pieces and replaced Mesopotamian culture, the culture we have talked about since the first day of this course when we started with Settled People. He replaced that with Greek. And it is going to be Greek culture of the small city of Plato and Aristotle and of Hellenistic science that is of Alexandria that is going to dominate the Middle East, that is going to be the world Jesus grows up in, that is going to be the world that, that Muhammad grows up in, to be fair. He's Arab, but he lives in an urban world that is, Greek is the major part of education is the language of education for the most part. 
um, there will be Greek kingdoms in India for a little bit, but mostly in Afghanistan. This is why I, 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 I get so apocalyptic when people talk about Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires and like, well, Alexander didn't come. Alexander conquered the shit out of it. It took him longer. The, the, the one problem is it took him longer than he thought he would do it. But in the end, he ended up marrying a Bactrian princess. He left enough garrison there that the, those Greek garrisons became a Greek empire in the middle of Afghanistan, 2,000 miles away from Greece. And then it conquered part of India and held sway in the eastern part of Iran, Persia, for a couple hundred years. The Greco-Bactrian Empire. You don't create a Greek empire in a place that you don't conquer. Much less, does you can't conquer India if you don't conquer Afghanistan. You don't flee out of a place to go conquer something new in a place you lose. So, oh, oh. The Russians lost in Afghanistan and it's become the graveyard of empires. That's all it is. In fact, Afghanistan is, if anything, the, the origin of empires. Many Muslim kingdoms that conquer India start there. Tamerlane starts essentially there. Um, the Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tur that part right there. Samarkand, Herat, Bukhara, these big cities. That's what Alexander... Oh, it hurts my head. But that's the point. Is that Afghanistan was European for a while. It was stopped being Asian in its culture. Greek, in the middle of Afghanistan, there were Greek-speaking people reading Greek books, walking on streets named after Greek people, past Greek temples, to go see a Greek play in a Greek-Athenian-style theater to be performed in Greek with an audience of people eating Greek food and wearing Greek clothes. And what the Greeks did that the Persians don't is let everybody become Greek. Hey! Now, there is a culturalism to this. You had to really be Greek to be the top of the top. And in fact, there's lots of, of, of little, um, um, especially Egyptians. Egyptians were very big on writing. And so we got, a, and since it's a desert, we got a lot of their records. Um, but there's lots of complaints uh, by like Egyptian people who are like, oh, the Greeks, they won't let me, they, they get all the best stuff. And I get, I get, people insult me. I can't get a good job because I just don't speak Greek. But, but my neighbor who learned Greek, he gets a good job. That's not really fair. And so people culturally became Greek because it was what was the future. Alexander did that. And so the end comes with Alexander's invasion. 
the end of the army, the Persian army. It breaks. The Persian army broke apart. And when it broke apart, the Persian Empire broke apart. And that is the end of the Persians. So we're going to now go back in time, go to Egypt, do Egyptian geography, then the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom. Uh, we're going back to 3,000, 4,000 BC. So we're going back 3,000 years. We finished with Mesopotamia. Now it's to Egypt, after Egypt, the Hebrews. All right. Thank you. Take care and bye.